People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Alan Moore, V for Vendetta. Our masters have not heard the people's voice for generations, Evie, and it is much, much louder than they care to remember. Alan Moore, V for Vendetta. Hello, welcome to This is the End, a PopMythology.com podcast. I am your host, the Pop Mythologist, and today I'll be interviewing a special guest. But before I introduce her, let me quickly provide a bit of context. So back in mid-November, in the city of Muncie, Indiana, an English teacher had her high school students read the graphic novel V for Vendetta by Alan Moore, David Lloyd, and a team of other creatives. After reading the book, she gave her students an assignment, which I'm going to let her tell us about. But basically, as a result of this assignment, the local police showed up at the school and gave the teacher and her students all kinds of grief about it. Here to tell us all about this incident, as well as to discuss V for Vendetta and its current relevance today, is that very teacher from Muncie, Indiana. I'm pleased to welcome on the show today, Katie O'Connor. Hi, Katie. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. And also thank you, by the way, for opening today's episode with that awesome quote from V for Vendetta. Can you tell us a little bit about why you like that quote so much? Oh, man, that is the classic quote. If anybody has seen this movie or read the graphic novel, then that's one that has to definitely stand out. And it stands the test of time, too, because, I mean, it's been a rallying cry and protests across the nation. It's just... It's a timeless quote for sure. So just generally speaking, because I only very vaguely alluded to the event, could you start by telling us a little bit about what you teach and where you teach? Yeah, I teach in Muncie, Indiana, which is a very red state, and I teach high school level. The particular class in question we're discussing today is 11th graders, but I also teach freshmen. And what is the name of the school, if you're allowed to share that? Oh, sure. It's Muncie Central High School. So we're going to discuss the aforementioned incident in just a moment. But before that, could you first tell us a little bit about why you teach this book, V for Vendetta, in general? Because I assume you do so year to year, not just this year. And why you have your students read this book? Actually, this is my second year at Muncie Central High School. And this is the first time I've actually taught this book. So I was pretty excited to do so because I have a passion for the original graphic novel itself and especially the movie. So it's actually that passion that made me teach it to my students. The the beginning of this story starts at the first assignment of the year where my students are assigned a get to know you project. So day one, they come in and they make posters basically about themselves. So I, being a teacher, modeled that for them and I made my own poster. And one of the sections of requirements was, what is your favorite movie, favorite show, favorite music, whatever. So I listed my own favorites, and I would say V for Vendetta. And now I'm 34 years old, and I forget. These kids are 16, 17. They have no idea what V for Vendetta is. So the ensuing conversation was then, what's V for Vendetta, Miss O'Connor? And so the way that I described it, apparently my enthusiasm was a little bit contagious because for the next two weeks, they would not stop asking me, when can we read it, Miss O'Connor? You're the English teacher. Can't you? we just read whatever we want? Isn't it a movie? We could read it and then watch the movie. And so that's kind of how this whole thing started. Why is it your favorite work? First of all, if people hear that this is my favorite 
graphic novel here and, and then favorite movie, they might think that I'm a big graphic novel fan. And that is actually not necessarily true. This is probably the only graphic novel I've ever read front to back. There's a couple roller derby novels or graphic novels that I'm into. And I've read those as well, but I am not like a comic book nerd by any stretch of the imagination. But this one, when the movie came out, and I admit, even as an English teacher, this is kind of like a cardinal sin, but I saw the movie before I actually read the literature. I apologize to Alan Moore in advance, but the movie just absolutely, the, the visuals of the movie and the way the Wachowskis did it was amazing. And the storyline, I mean, I am a lesbian and so in was it 2010? I don't even remember. But when the movie came out, I was just in awe that there was actually some representation of a queer story on a movie because back then that was actually still super rare. So that was what drew me to it initially. And I was like, wow, there's someone on screen like me and it's in a real theater and not some weird side documentary thing. So that was my original interest in it. You know, when I read V for Vendetta, I personally found it not to be an easy read and not because of the philosophical messages or the themes which i got but there were a lot of characters it was kind of hard to keep track of at times and there were some linguistic and cultural idiosyncrasies that i felt like if you're not really familiar with you know the cultural environment then you, you might have a hard time following some of it and that was the case for me at the time do you find that when you assigned this book that you had to kind of guide your students through some of those details so that it doesn't get bogged down or that they don't get bogged down in those details and miss the larger message of the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple things that I did with that to I just I was anticipating that kind of reaction with my students. A lot of them had never read a comic book before, certainly not in one of their English classes. That's still kind of a strange thing to do, but it is a genre of literature and also very important. So uh, we started with intro activities. It was literally just how to read a comic book. And we talked about what is the illustrator, what's the penciler and the inker and the people who make it behind the scenes. We talked about what is a panel, what is adding graphic weight, well, all the different things that go into the literature part of the graphic novel. So since we started there and did like little mini lessons about just how to read a graphic novel, I think that really helped them out. There is just a ton of characters. So that was kind of rough to get through as far as just keeping track of things in your head. So they had a list of the characters as they went, as well as a picture next to them. And it's been discussed before, I've noticed, with other people who have either taught this book before or have had like lesson plans online and things that I looked at, that all of, especially the male characters, look almost identical in the way that they're drawn. And I think I could talk, as an English teacher, I could talk for hours about the symbolism behind that, but I'll leave that for another day. But yes, there's a lot of characters, one. Two, it's hard to keep track of them because they look similar. And three, there's a lot of different storylines going on at once, and that's hard to keep track of. I find it's a testament to how much my students loved this book and actually read it, because let me tell you, students, they don't read all the time. So it is a testament to how into this work they were that they got it and they picked up on the symbolism and the themes and all of the beautiful language artsy things that you could do with this book that Alan Moore just weaved so beautifully in there. So they really latched onto it because they were so interested in it. So why do you think the book resonated so much with them? I really think it comes down to a couple different things. First of all, it was an interesting new thing, new concept that their English teacher gave them a graphic novel instead of a one more classic hardback or paperback or some article offline. So I think that drew their interest immediately. 
And then the fact that there's this murderous masked person who gets revenge on everybody who has wronged him in his life. I mean, who doesn't relate to being a little bit angry sometimes and maybe in your own head wanting to do some of those things. Plus, they're hormonal teenagers. And so it's a cool story. And it's one of those, again, like I said earlier with the quote, it's just timeless. There's always someone in power who is trying to assert that power over someone else. And to them, that could be their mom, (laughs) their 16 year old. It could be their teacher that they happen to not like or the class that they don't like or the principal or their coach. I mean, it's the classic power struggle between who's in charge and who's not in charge. And so, I mean, who can't relate to a story like that? Indeed. So let's get to the actual incident that I mentioned, which, again, I only alluded to very vaguely. So for those who aren't familiar with it, could you summarize what happened? And can you start first by telling our audience exactly what the assignment was that you gave to your students? Yeah, definitely. We had finished reading the book and we had also watched the movie and had discussions about which way it was going to go. And I mean, they were on the edge of their seats when we watched the movie. I actually didn't finish the graphic novel with them. I left the ending off and then we viewed the movie because if you have read the graphic novel, there's a different kind of ending and it, it goes off in some different directions that we didn't really need to get into because as far as class goes, I didn't need to spend all the time it would take to deconstruct the ending of the graphic novel. So we finished the movie. By the time we finished reading the book and then watched the movie, it was time for like a culminating project. So I gave my students, I think, five different choices. They could either, choice number one, they could make a soundtrack for the graphic novel. Ten songs with ten rationales. Why did you choose that song? It could be related to a character. It could be their theme song. It could be, oh, in this scene, this song fits so well. So there were some parameters around it, but make a soundtrack. The second choice was rewrite the ending. If there was a certain point after Evie was released from quote-unquote jail, anytime after that, they could change anything that happened after that. Just a creative writing assignment. Then the third choice was another creative writing assignment where they could take on the persona of one or two characters from the graphic novel and write ten diary entries that could take place any part within the story. Your Evie, say how you felt on day one when you woke up in V's little antechamber underground. Gallery of Shadows. Shadow Gallery. There it is. So you could do that. Option number four was create a poster. Think about if V were here in United States, and this is the one that raised all the questions and got all the attention. Option number four was if you were V, if V were in the United States, what kinds of problems would he identify that needed to be changed? We talked about the speech where V takes over on TV and he gives the address to all of the people of London. And he says, this is wrong. This is wrong. What are you doing? Have you been paying attention? Open your eyes. All the things. And the speech in the graphic novel is different from the one in the movie, but they both address that people need to pay attention to what's going on in their surroundings. So I asked the students, if V were in America, what would his problems be that he would say need a closer look? Then the last option was a TikTok video or a series of TikTok videos, which were a book review where they would just say a video of whether they liked the book or not. So out of all those five choices, keep in mind, they did not have to make a poster if they didn't want to. If they didn't want to discuss anything, quote unquote, political or even voice their own opinions, they didn't have to. They could have done a soundtrack or a TikTok video. So it was not even required. Long story short, most of my students chose the poster because lo and behold, even teenagers are paying attention to the world. Do they have all the details? No. 
Do they still need some guidance on where to get those details and things like that? Absolutely. But are they interested in what's going on? Yes, because it's happening all around them. And trust me, they notice. So the problem came down to um, one student in particular made a poster. And one thing that she identified was wrong in America was the issue of police brutality. So her poster outlined police brutality, named it that, put the names of police brutality victims who had been killed around an image. And in the image was a cop in like a cop hat. And he was portrayed with a pig-like nose and pig-like ears and like sunglasses on. And then in his mouth was a red, white, and blue kind of flag with it kind of bleeding out of his mouth. So there was an image on it. And then it had statistics about police brutality in America all around it and this whole beautiful project. So the student actually sent me the picture to be printed to then be put on the poster. And so I had to okay it first. And I asked her, I said, listen, this picture could be considered offensive. Do you really think this is the route you want to go? And had my student said, you know, screw the police, they're just, you know, been on some angsty teenager thing, I would have never put that poster up. But She actually gave me a college thesis-worthy response. So I said, okay. So I put it on the poster and I smacked it up on the wall as a proud display in the hallway. So I noticed that people were stopping and taking pictures of that particular poster and some of the other ones that were hung up around. And long story short, I called a meeting with my principal and I said, I think this poster is taking on a life of its own and people are talking about it, but no one's talking to me about it. I try to engage in conversation with them and they just walk away, these conservative people in my school. So I I asked my principal, I think we need a meeting to kind of nip this in the bud before it's a problem. Little did I know it was already a problem. And then on my Facebook page, you can see it and it's been bouncing around Twitter, which is what what kind of got the news interested in it. There was a Friday at school the other week and three police officers stopped and looked at the posters outside my wall, including that one that I just talked about. And it sparked about an hour-long conversation between three of the um, SROs, they're called student resource officers, the armed guards in the building. So three of them, all three of them in the building, I believe, stopped, and they were looking, kind of dissecting all the posters. And then they pulled my student over, or I guess my student came over to them and talked to them, and they started really kind of questioning her, like, where did you get these statistics? That's not right. I know that's not right. I'm disappointed in you kind of talk. And so I was in the hallway helping out other students at the time. And when I overheard that and I could see that she was uncomfortable, I came over to talk to them and kind of replace her and say, okay, well, if you have a problem, let's talk about it. And then another teacher came over as well. So that's the video that anybody might have seen online that kind of went with that. Are you with me so far? This is kind of a long story. I am indeed with you. Okay. So we had about an hour-long conversation, this other teacher and myself and the three SRO officers, and it was mostly a respectful conversation. We were passionate and we got a little bit loud, but we agreed on things. We talked about how, yeah, police need more training. We all agreed with that. But essentially what it came down to is the SROs, the student resource officers, at least one of them did not believe that police brutality existed. And that was his argument, that that's not a thing. And then if If police do need to use force, then it is required, and that is what they're trained to do, and and things like that. So the conversation turned to that, and then the other teacher and I would say, 
you're right. There are situations where you have to use force, but don't you see these statistics? And, you know, kind of gestured at the wall full of statistics because other students had done posters as well. And they just kind of continued to say it wasn't about race. It wasn't about race. So the students were not involved in that conversation, but they were loitering in the background and listening to that conversation. And they were very upset hearing the people that carry guns in their school say that they don't think that police brutality is a thing. And if it is a thing and there is brutal police, that it's deserved and it's not charged with any racist background or anything like that. So because the students were upset by that, the one of them posted the video on Twitter and that is what kind of garnered all this attention. What happened at the same time, which I could not have written this better if I were writing this story myself, but what happened at the same time that morning that this very conversation took place and my students happened to be turning in their assignments, that morning, the attorney general of Indiana, his name is Todd Rakita, he put out an opinion statement into the world. And I had no idea this was happening until later that day. But he put out an opinion that basically labeled Black Lives Matter as a political organization, in his opinion, and said that basically there's no place for it in schools. So when I had the conversation later that day with my principal about trying to quell the rumors or quell the upset about this poster, they said, you need to take the posters down. And their reasoning was because Todd Rakita just released the statement and said Black Lives Matter is too political to be in the school hallways. You can put them inside your classroom, but they cannot be outside the classroom. So that is how we arrived at the mess of what happened with all that. And just for some additional context for the listeners, I want to clarify that student resource officers are actually an official division of the police. That is correct, right, Katie? As far as I know, yes. Yes. As far as I understand, they are actually police. And uh, moreover, they are armed. So I think if you're in the position of being a student and you're having armed police officers confront you in the hallways of your school, that is disconcerting to say the very least. Or at least the textbook definition of what would be called intimidation. And also, just so our listeners know, according to the ACLU, based on some data in recent years, these student resource officers across the country are actually known to disproportionately target students of color and students with disabilities. So this is kind of fitting right into that. And I also wanted to ask you, please tell us about how you feel about the ironies of this happening, given what this book is about. I mean, I'm laughing because I, I'm sure I'm laughing along with any audience member out there who has ever heard this story, because it's like, and someone actually put on a, on a YouTube video, I think his name is like Bo of the Fifth or something like that. He actually had an entire episode dedicated to this. And you you can't make it more ironic, this situation. He said something like, oh, it's like the administration read V for Vendetta and used it as a how-to guide instead of a what-not-to-do guide. And it is, I mean, that's that's the simple irony of it right there is that the people, the characters in the book were these futuristic kind of overlords in this dystopia who took away every freedom and tried to control everything insofar as making up news stories to cover up things use fear to make people do what they want and stay docile. And this administration and their response to what's been going on was, yes, we will listen to some man out there who's very conservative and put out an opinion, and we will lean hard into that opinion of the conservative attorney general and blame that for needing to take away this kind of eyesore in the hallway that has upset some of the adults in the building. 
And mind you, it was only the adults in the building who were upset about these posters. There were zero student complaints, as far as I know. What happened was, sorry, a bunch of fragile white people looked at a picture and were offended and then made some complaints about it behind my back as the teacher who put it out there. I keep telling people, had they come up to me and said, you know, that picture is really offensive. I don't know about that. I would have said, you're right. I get it. I'm taking the picture down. The poster stays up, but I'll take that one picture down. And this could have been resolved so easily, which just goes back to the book. If you just pay attention and be an adult about things and talk about things, then you can avoid a lot of these ridiculous scenarios that get blown out of proportion. But no, then the students saw the posters taken down, saw the reason for the posters being taken down was that, oh, Black Lives Matter is labeled as too political to be in school hallways. Oh, but you could put them in your classroom. They were obviously confused. So what did they do? They were pissed. They sat down in the student center and refused to go to class all day. They held a little sit-in protest. It was nonviolent. It didn't really interrupt other classes that were going on. Students decided, I'm sitting here until you tell me why do Black Lives Matter not belong in the school or put the posters back up because actually we think they do belong in schools. So then, as a result of that, there was a sit-in protest that day. Basically, no students went to class. And then, or a majority of the students in the building did not go to class. It was a wasted work day from my point of view. I didn't know what was going on that day, but none of my students showed up. And then news started trickling in what was happening. And then it was, as a result of that, there were three days called off on um, e-learning because the administration decided that it was not a safe enough environment to have class in person. They needed to have it at home was kind of their explanation for that. So we had three days off of school where the students participated in e-learning as a result of that protest. Kind of crazy. But the fact that your students did protest and they did this sit-in, they also marched, and they didn't just kind of take this quietly, does that make you proud, especially given, like once again, the themes in the book? Yeah, I mean, there's that silly thing going around on TikTok right now, that song that I understood the assignment. All my students understood that assignment. They read a book about people who try to control you and don't have very good evidence to back it up, and they're not allowed to be questioned in the book. And then this real-life situation kind of dropped into their lap. Hey, you can't have that poster out. Here's a vague reason why. And then they said, "Um, no, that's not a good enough reason why. We want to know the reason why. And so if they were like the people in the book, they would have been trained eventually to just be quiet and make this go away. But by the end of the book, you realize you can't just be quiet because these things don't go away. Whoever's in power will get more power or they'll use that power to make sure you don't have any power at all. So they understood the assignment. They took the opportunity to say, "Okay, well, we have a question about this. And if you're not going to answer a question about this, then we're not going to do what you say. And it was just civil disobedience at its finest and using their First Amendment rights to say, listen, this is not fair. We know it's not fair. We want an answer. So after the three days of e-learning that they they came back, there still was no answer. The administration is saying that they're carrying out an investigation. And once the investigation is finished, then they will let everybody know in the community what's been going on and what the result of this quote unquote investigation will be. But I think if they are not heard again, there's I would assume there's going to be the same kind of response. We'll see, I guess. I do believe if V were a real character, a real person, he would also be very proud of your students. 
And Alan Moore, I'm sure he's proud. And in fact, even though Alan Moore, to my knowledge, does not use social media, his daughter does. And she tweeted about this as she tweeted that she talked to her father and that he sent his love and support and his regrets that his book continues to be so relevant. When you saw that, did that did you get a bit of a kick out of that, given how big a fan of the book you are? Um, I think a kick out of that would be the understatement of the century. I think I literally fell out of my chair and then jumped for joy. Even when it was his daughter, Leah Moore, who is also a talented artist. I mean, she is famous in her own right. The fact that she tweeted me at all, I was like, this is insane. What is happening in my life right now? And then, yeah, she tweeted back and said, I'll talk to my dad about it later. And I thought, no way. It was just a pure disbelief in my head. And he actually, he said, um, the students got together and they decided, a former student of mine who actually graduated from a different high school that I used to teach at, she has her own business now and she makes these t-shirts with, you know, the vinyl lettering and the cricket and all that. And she came and sought me out and volunteered. She said, listen, I want to help. What can I do to help? And I hooked her up with some of the students and they worked together to make free t-shirts that said Black Lives Matter on them for the students to wear at school. And we handed out I think there were like 200 T-shirts that were handed out just for free to all the students. And she took donations from around the community. And we got a hefty donation from Alan Moore's personal assistant. And it was the coolest thing I think I've ever been a part of. Wow, that is awesome. So I wanted to ask about this incident in light of a larger, broader kind of wave of incidents occurring throughout the country. Just mm -hmm. as an example, in the state of Texas... State Representative Matt Krause, in his role as House Committee on General Investigating, recently asked superintendents at many schools throughout the state whether or not their libraries or classrooms carried any of 850 books that are currently on a blacklist of titles that make people, quote unquote, uncomfortable, especially pertaining to race, class, gender, sexuality in any way, even remotely. And it's just part of this general national hysteria over critical race theory or, or people's perceptions of what that means. And I looked at the list and it's like it's this ridiculous list. It's any book that basically brings attention to the fact that all is not hunky dory in our society. And sure enough, one of these books is V for Vendetta. And so this state representative is demanding that schools tell them if they have any of these books, how many copies, which part of campus the books are located in, how much money the school spent on these books. And as an English teacher, you understand the importance of books and especially a diverse range of books covering diverse topics to a functioning democracy. So in what ways do you think all this recent hysteria about inappropriate books or what people perceive to be inappropriate books caused you to worry and, and why? Oh, man, I think you hit the nail on the head. So you said mass hysteria, but also you quoted the Texas guy and he said books that make people uncomfortable. And I think that's just it. I think the Mostly conservative leaning, the people who want to hold on to the old ways, the people who don't want you to question things are uncomfortable because, I mean, they call it the woke generation. And I don't know about all that stuff, but they certainly have information available at their fingertips at all times. Whether that information is factual or not is a whole nother story for a different podcast. But like that one student told me, they've seen George Floyd Example after example, that's just the most, it's not even the most recent one. It was the most popular recent one. But there are a million others. There's the Sandra Blands. I, I could, I'm not going to list all the names because it would take me the next 45 minutes. But 
these travesties are happening and they're happening in real time. And most of the time they record it now right in front of the students. It doesn't even take an English teacher to see that this is a problem that people being uncomfortable with the truth or reality or the history of their nation. Yeah, you're going to be uncomfortable because people are figuring out what happened for themselves and they want to know more about it. Then where do they look for that? Education. So I'm an English teacher. I have the benefit of knowing the story of Fahrenheit 451 and what happens if you lose all the books in society. I know exactly the plot of 1984 and what happens if you try to dumb everyone down and make them not ask questions anymore. And I've read V for Vendetta. I mean, the list goes on of just those cautionary tales again and again of if you take away education, yeah, you can control people, but it never ends well at all. There's either a riot, an uprising, or society crumbles because it's a bunch of idiots. I mean, time and time again, you cannot take away education and you can't suppress people who ask good questions. If they're asking good questions, they deserve an answer. Speaking of Fahrenheit 451, there was that school board meeting a few weeks back where they were literally calling for book burning, literally. That was absolutely insane. And other than censorship, when you look around America today, when you look around our society, what things concern you the most? Like, in other words, in what ways do you fear that our society may be inching its way closer towards the dystopian vision of V for Vendetta? Honestly, I think the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about, you know, worrying for the future and things like that is this pattern that we've seen in politics, in pop culture even, I mean, all over the place, this pattern of over and over again. Okay, so when I think of that Attorney General Todd Rakita in Indiana, which is the reason that my school decided that the Black Lives Matter posters could not be in the hallway. He claimed in his opinion, which he put out, that you can't, I forget the language specifically, but you can't put up posters for one political affiliation claiming that Black Lives Matter was a political affiliation, which is not technically accurate. But you can't put up one side if you're not going to also put up the other side. So, A, my first question to Todd would be, what is the other side of Black Lives Matter? And if it's Blue Lives Matter, then let's have a whole different conversation about how there's no such thing as a blue life. Because if you don't want to be a cop anymore, then you quit your job and find a new career. But if you don't want to be black anymore, sorry, you're stuck with it. So that would be a whole nother conversation. But I think it comes back to this problem, this worry that I have with society is that everybody either wants to throw out so much confusing knowledge at once, make it confusing on purpose. The media does this. It's all over the place. Politicians love to do this. But it's throw out a bunch of information or no information and let everyone be confused without correcting them. And then by the time you come in with your official statement or an actual answer, basically it makes people numb is what it does. It makes people think there's too much information out there. How am I supposed to trust this or this? Which source is the right source? Ah, I just give up. I'm not going to pay attention to any of it. Or they go to the both sidesism where if we're going to allow these people to speak, then we also need to allow these people to speak. Um, no, because sometimes the opposite of Black Lives Matter is what? The KKK? We're going to give the KKK a voice? No, we're not. That's not actually how this works. They don't get a voice. That's unanimously wrong. So it's just the both sidesism, the trying to get people to be confused on purpose for the end result of they will just withdraw from the conversation completely, which is what the people in power want. 
it's just that's the scariest part is you can see time after time there's evidence of that happening all over the place in everything right now. The overload of information is sometimes detrimental because it's too much. That was very insightful. Thank you. So again, as an English teacher, for concerned citizens out there who are worried about this overall wave of hysteria and censorship of books and ideas, especially those that in any way address race, gender, class, or sexuality, what can they do in their own local towns and school districts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after the 2016 election, I dove into, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, so I dove into every news report. I read whatever the topic was, I read about it from The Hill. I read about it from CNN. I read about it from Fox News. I read it, I mean, I consumed every left, right, middle, everything information until I could decide what was actually happening because surely what was happening was not really happening. The real point is that it's easy to fall into the trap of, oh, it's just me. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I agree with this person or I disagree with this person, but what am I supposed to do about it? Well, you can bitch and moan about it with your friends around the dinner table, or you could pick up a phone and you could call the school board. In this particular instance, all of the emails of the school CEO, the superintendent, assistant superintendent, the principal, the chief communications officer, All of their emails are public knowledge. You can sit down, write up an email that says, you know, I have been watching what's going on at the school. And honestly, you could end it there and that would get their attention enough. Just that the fact that they know that the community is watching them is enough for them to be more prompted to make a response. Because if they don't feel like that many people care, then they're not in any rush to resolve this situation because they want it to just go away because it looks bad. It's a stain on their record. So if no one's interested, it goes away. If you can show that you're interested, write an email, send a letter, make a phone call, have your friend do it, do a Facebook post for crying out loud. You can tag people. You can at people. You can tweet at all the administrators all you want. Any type of drawing attention to, hey, by the way, I care about this and I'm invested too as a member of the community or as a parent or as a teacher or a student, whatever. Showing that you're interested is enough to make them say, oh, I guess we should pay attention to this. Maybe we should resolve this in a way that makes the most amount of people happy instead of just what makes it go away for us. So just any kind of attention drawn to it is something anybody can do. Once again, that's a great reminder that governments, including school governments, should be afraid of their people. That's right. And lastly, for people who want to show support specifically for the cause of your students at your school, uh, what can they do? Yeah, I mean, anybody locally, I would encourage them to let the school board know what's going on. Any member of the school board, any member of the actual administration, the superintendent, like I said, principal and all that, you can reach out to them. They're definitely more likely to listen to someone locally here as part of the community than anyone outside the community. But Even if you're outside of the community, um, like I mentioned earlier, I have some former students of mine who got together, heard about this, and they started um, a Facebook page. It's called Student Voices, which you can find on Facebook, or you can find me on Facebook, Katie O'Connor. And they're taking donations. They're going to make a second round of shirts, I think, is what they're working on now, so that uh, we have about somewhere around 1,300 students in the building, and we handed out 200 shirts, and they went like that. And I've had a million requests for more T-shirts, so... 
we had said originally the the students agreed that any money that they made would be put towards those shirts and any money that they made over that amount would be dedicated to the senior class, their choice of a charity that they would put it towards. So if somebody in the community donated $1 over the amount of what it costs to make the shirts, then that $1 goes to the senior class. They get to choose a charity that it will go to. So right now, if you want to donate to get a Black Lives Matter t-shirt in the hands of all the students here at school in preparation for our next protest when they inevitably announce whatever it is they announce, you could make a donation. Or other than that, if it's just kind of you want to get involved, I would check wherever you live. There's probably something going on there, too. I live in Indiana. You mentioned Texas. I know there are some things going on in Ohio. I know other places in Indiana, a teacher was, uh, I'm not sure the full details, but basically there was a pride flag in the room that caused too much attention. Teacher was told to take it down. Teacher refused to take it down, so on and so forth. So it's a Black Lives Matter poster in the hallway. It's a pride flag displayed in the classroom. It's the books that are listed that now have to be categorized and, and listed because I don't know what comes next. But these things are happening everywhere. I would recommend everybody go to their school and say, hey, what are you guys doing with this whole critical race theory thing? I think that's a good idea. Or I think that's a bad idea. I don't care if people agree with me or not, but if you're going to be in a world that is the place that you want it to be, you're going to have to speak up and say what you want it to be and not just complain about it later once it happens. Very well said. Katie O'Connor, thank you so much for the good work that you do. And thank you so much for taking the time out to be on our show today. Of course, I feel honored that People are actually listening to my students. That was kind of the goal in the first place was, hey, if you see a problem in the world, what problem would that be? And we'll put up posters for awareness. And here we are. I'm on a podcast. I've been on the news. I think awareness has been reached. This is a problem, people. SOS. Send help. Okay. And for all listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, I'm your host, the pop mythologist, and this is the end. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please subscribe, and if you're willing, share one of these episodes on social media. If you're sharing on Twitter, go ahead and tag us at TheN underscore podcast or at PopMythology, and I'll be sure to retweet you. And if your chosen podcast platform allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts, I invite you to leave a review as well. Thank you.